0: Um, So, as we start today, I'm going to begin things a little differently than we often do uh, at this point. We're going to start with a bit of a reflective moment, okay? I want to invite you into a thoughtful posture. You can close your eyes if you prefer, and I'm going to invite you to think about a place, a physical location, Some place that holds a lot of meaning to you. You don't have to work too hard. It doesn't have to be like the most important significant place ever in your life. Just think of some physical space that has helped you connect to something bigger than yourself. Perhaps it's a space that connects you with your history. Perhaps it reminds you of the wonder of the natural world perhaps you'd say it connects you to god so i'm just going to invite you for a moment to remember that space whatever it, it comes to mind for you to imagine it imagine being there right now what are the sensations what are the sights what are the colors what are the sounds what are the smells the tastes the tu- the feelings on your skin As you reflect on that place, I invite you to just give thanks for that space and the memories that it holds. Amen. You can open your eyes. We're going to be continuing today our series on rebuilding after disruption. And as we get into our topic for today, I think that reflective moment will be a useful reference point for us. So thank you for entering into it with me. This is a series we're calling Recovering the Sacred, As Father Richard Rohr describes, this is a series in which we're talking about moving through this season from a time of disorder, as he calls it, to hopefully a season of reordering. As we slowly, perhaps somewhat haltingly, it feels like, try to emerge from this pandemic and its effects and consider what life looks like in the after. How do things look going forward and how we think about our families, our friends, our work. And specifically, we're considering in this space, particularly at Haven, our life of faith, our our spiritual journeys. Throughout this series, we've been looking at the books from the Hebrew Bible of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the story that they tell about a community that's rebuilding after a prolonged displacement and season of trauma, one that we've studied before together, the Babylonian exile. And we're considering together what lessons we might draw from this part of our tradition around how we may or may not want to rebuild in this time what we might consider or value as we do. So today's teaching, I'll just give you a heads up. This is gonna be a joint effort between me and Jeannie we're team teaching today. So I'm going to kick things off by sharing the Bible story. And then she'll lead us in some reflection around kind of how the lessons from that story might be relevant to us today in this work of recovering the sacred that we're doing. So I'll start with this story. First, a bit of context. A lot of you were traveling a couple weeks ago when I shared my last teaching, which dealt with a story in this Ezra-Nehemiah arc that honestly I found pretty problematic. And so a lot of the teaching was really around what do you do when there are stories in our tradition that we really take issue with. And if that sounds intriguing to you and you haven't heard the teaching, you might want to go look it up on YouTube and and listen, because I think there's some potentially helpful stuff there. Um, So anyway... To catch you up, the temple in Jerusalem has now been rebuilt. And then last week we saw this important scholar of the Hebrew Bible leads another entourage of folks that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. This man Ezra comes to oversee the temple worship there to kind of help people actually understand how to restore worship to Yahweh, how to get back on track with their practice of faith. And that included some pretty intense reforms. But as we're gonna see going forward, there are still challenges in the exile, in the returned exile community, okay? Things are not perfect just because they have a temple. Thank you so much. So that brings us to our story today, okay? The story uh, in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah is where we're starting, okay? It takes place roughly a dozen years or so after where we left off last two weeks ago, okay? And if this narrative were a film, at this point in the story, the camera would cut from where everything else has been set, the like rugged ruins of Jerusalem to a completely different scenario, a totally different set. We'd find ourselves now in the capital of Persia, which remember the empire of Persia is kind of the empire that, uh, that Judah, Jerusalem, they are now occupied by, they are under. So this is kind of like throughout the, that area of the world. This is the capital city, the city of Susa. And we're in the palace of the emperor who oversees the whole region, including the Jewish people living in Judah and Jerusalem. And there in the courts of the Persian emperor, we would meet this interesting new character named Nehemiah, who's both a high-placed officer in the king's palace, and he also happens to be a person of Jewish descent. And so we're gonna pick up the story with the beginning of Nehemiah, and it's in the voice of this new character. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, While I was in the citadel of Susa, he says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I'm gonna summarize a little bit and skip ahead. I'm not gonna read the whole prayer, but he basically starts this long prayer. Um, Nehemiah is grieving to God this news that apparently things in Judah don't look so great. He's confessing the sins of his ancestors, asking God for help, picking it up a few verses later in verse 8. Remember the instruction, he prays, you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah goes on in prayer. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king. I was cupbearer, Nehemiah says to the king. He was cupbearer to the king. Going on, so, so hopefully you're all with me. He's gotten the news. He lives in the palace in Persia, but he's gotten the news that his, his relatives, from relatives visiting from Judah, that things don't look so great there, and all the gates are destroyed, and the walls are still in ruins. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of king Artaxerxes, that's the emperor, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, Nehemiah says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, well, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so I can rebuild it. And then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, Well, how long will your journey take and when will you get back it pleased the king to send me so i set a time and then again i'll summarize basically he asks for political support he asks for military escort he asks for financial support to do this rebuilding and the emperor blesses all of it it says go so going on i went to jerusalem And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. Almost done. When Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Okay? So that's the story. The story of Nehemiah feeling called to leave Persia, come to Jerusalem and lead the effort to rebuild the walls and the gates and secure Jerusalem going forward. So what's this story supposed to mean for us? What kind of relevance might it hold in any way? Obviously it's a very different story, very different historical context than uh, what we're living through and what we're rebuilding. But I think there is, as we dig into the story a little bit, um, some in- interesting things for us to think about that might actually be helpful as we do our own reordering. So I'm going to kind of tease those out just by asking a few questions, questions that I think came up for me when I'm reading the story. We're kind of doing like just a little Bible study light here. Um, what what are some of the things that come up and then um, how might we address those and then what might that give us a better sense of why this story is relevant, Okay. So the first question I had was, why was Nehemiah so grieved when he heard about the state of things in Judah? That's where it all starts, right? He gets this news, and he just completely falls apart in grief. I think what the story is pointing us to is the reality that the Jewish audience that this was originally written for would have probably intuitively understood. Nehemiah was grieved because he recognized the significance that this particular place— jerusalem held for his people nehemiah points again and again as he's kind of in that place of explaining why he needs to do this to the history of this place he points to how his tradition has taught that this is yahweh's chosen dwelling place on earth it's also he says multiple times the place where his ancestors are buried For Nehemiah, the space in Jerusalem was sacred. And as long as it was in ruins, they as a community, as a Jewish community dispersed throughout Persia, they were all in a state of disgrace. Now, when you think about who Nehemiah is, the life he has lived, I think it's kind of interesting that Nehemiah feels this much grief over this place Because Jerusalem is not a place from the story that we can tell that he's ever lived, or presumably ever even been to. Nehemiah's own living situation is far from disgraceful. He has humongous privilege. He lives in the royal palace. According to historical sources, as the cupbearer to the emperor, he's basically second in authority to the king. Okay, this guy is a very high up, probably very privileged official. So what we see is that his perspective, the reason he is grieving is about more than himself personally. This is not about him grieving his own home, his own physical space. It's about him grieving for the people he is a part of and what it means that this historic space is still in ruins for all of them, himself included. And so Nehemiah asks for favor. He works himself up. The dates in the story indicate he actually waits about four months before finally approaching the emperor with his request. And that brings me to the second question. Why does the emperor bless Nehemiah to go? Even sending military escort and rebuilding resources. The story doesn't really tell us, but the king seems to be moved by Nehemiah's personal investment in the project. It's like he seems to see this grief that Nehemiah carries and he wants to alleviate it. And even if he has no personal stake in Jerusalem's state, in fact, as some of those folks in the end are saying, you know, this could be seen as a move that would make Jerusalem and Judah, which are currently occupied by this emperor, stronger. Potentially, it could be seen as an act of rebellion against the emperor to try to fortify their city. But he seems more interested in the sacredness this place holds to Nehemiah. He seems to get it. He is moved. It is powerful to see somebody who cares so much about his people's space being cared for and and his heart is moved and he blesses the project. So how does Nehemiah's arrival impact the people in Jerusalem? I think this is interesting. When Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, first he kind of takes the you know he does this whole thing it goes at night to kind of get the lay of the land to try to make like a strategy for how they're going to do this and then he brings this fresh insight and perspective on the state that they are living in you know the people there perhaps have become accustomed to just seeing their city in ruins and to facing opposition from the neighbors they likely have come to normalize it to accept it. But Nehemiah brings this kind of fresh lens, this fresh perspective, this fresh concern that's not simply personal, but it comes all the way from the Persian emperor's palace. He also brings leadership. Nehemiah is clearly a skilled political organizer, and he's now using his leadership skills and gifts towards this end of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, bringing the capacity to make a strategic plan, to share a vision, bring people together to accomplish something that for whatever reason, they didn't have the ability to do before all of this time. And finally, the last question, how are Nehemiah and those he leads different from these three people we meet at the end who are mocking him? The personal investment in the space, the value of its sacredness, the attachment Nehemiah and those who follow him have to this particular land, and the role it has played in the lives of their ancestors, this seems to give them all a claim to the land, a concern for it that their neighbors just don't have. For those three and the peoples that they represent, I think the land is more of a commodity, something to be acquired, potentially for leverage and power, and similarly traded away if it benefits them. The land itself is not sacred. It is transactional. But Nehemiah recognizes a deeper connection to this space that connects himself and his people to their heritage, their ancestors, and ultimately the divine. I believe this contrast between those in Judah and their neighbors is a really interesting contrast for us to reflect on. As those living in 21st century United States, we have to acknowledge that most of us have a very different cultural perspective with a different relationship to place and land than those in Judah. Colonialism and capitalism have amplified and expanded the perspective that we see demonstrated in our story by these three neighbors of Israel inviting us, like them, to view land often as a commodity. But if we are going to recover the sacred, as I'm inviting us to do in this series, perhaps part of that recovery is acknowledging what has been lost as we as a people, as a generation, as a nation, have become more and more separated from recognizing the sacredness of place. You hear that? While we can't fully reshape the culture, we can't change the past and the dreadful impact of lands stolen from native peoples or peoples stolen from their land and forced to labor a land across the sea. We can seek to recover a reverence for our created world as well as its capacity to connect us with the creator And the importance of cultivating certain places that might be set apart in some way to honor our connection with the divine. This is what I'm inviting us to reflect on as we hear this story. So I'm going to turn things over to Jeannie, who's going to take us into the next piece of what that reflection might look like for us.
1: Thank you, Leah. Um, as Leah reminded us of of the sacredness of land, I was thinking of, that we don't often think of the sacredness of land. And I was thinking about what is sacred about Berkeley. Um, we have started recently doing a land acknowledgment for the Ohlone people that once held this land. And I don't know if you know there's a, a, a I don't know what you call, an action that they're trying to reclaim sacred land. um, There's a Segorite Land Trust that they are trying to get the shell mound parking lot down there in Berkeley to reclaim that land and back to native land and to be able to provide a space to reclaim the sacred and not just for the Ohlone people but for all of us, for us to learn what sacredness meant to them and what sacredness can be for this community once again and for them to be able to hold on to something that was stolen um, from them. And so as we do our land acknowledgement, that's our our way of standing in solidarity with the Ohlone people to remind us that this land is sacred to, to some people. And hopefully in doing that, we could find sacredness and attachment to that also. But um, yeah, as we continue thinking about reclaiming the sacred we did the sacred vision we did sacred heritage and today we are talking about sacred space and i was thinking oh man that's 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 a hard one because if you look around i was thinking how does how do we as a faith community create a sacred space and if you look around we're here at a school right and i was thinking where in religious circles have there been sacred spaces uh, For the for for Jews in Jerusalem, the Mount Temple Mount is very sacred, even to this day. Um, For Muslims, it's Mecca; they make a pilgrimage to Mecca. For Christians, it might be the Holy Land, or I know people of Catholic faith they do a lot of pilgrimages, and there's a lot of holy sites for Catholics. Um, In my denomination, growing up, evangelical denomination, we didn't have quote sacred places. Um, But it is still part of our traditions, right? And to know that, okay, there can be religious spaces. And so I was thinking about religious space that could be sacred within Berkeley. Do you know the oldest church in Berkeley? I looked it up. Hold on, it's on my other page. Uh, The oldest church in Berkeley is uh, Church of the Good Shepherd, and it's 141 years old. And it's still active today. That's a long time. That's a long legacy for a church. The church I grew up in uh, is 78 years old. It's still there in Richmond. There's still a community there. And I, and I remember being part of the, I don't know what they call them, reunions or whatever, as they celebrated the different years. And that's pretty old. Um, the church I left before coming here, It was 11 years old, but it doesn't exist anymore. We closed that church down. And so I was thinking about Haven. Oh, my gosh. In the life of Haven, we're babies. (laughs) This baby, 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 baby. Um, And then I started thinking, will Haven be around 140 years from now? Woo! Will it be around 11 years from now? Will it be around 78 years from now? And what does that mean for us? Wow. To create a sacred space for Haven for us individually, corporately, as a community. Um, two years ago, when Don and I started coming, Leah was doing a series about Smashing Idols. And I would say for myself, my journey, I have felt like I've been on a Smashing Idols, deconstructing my faith journey Um, and it's not, it hasn't always been easy. Uh, There are times I've felt like I want to burn it all down. Um, and so as we stepped into doing, reclaiming the sacred, I don't know about y'all, but it's been so important to me to know that I didn't have to burn it all down. And there are places that I can reclaim the sacred. And it's so important, um, so important for me to be part of that journey, to be able to reclaim the sacred. And I was thinking about sacred space and where in my journey, as I reclaim that, has that been true for me? Um, I used to be a youth minister for, I don't know, 14, 15 years. And one of my favorite, favorite things to do with the youth was take them to summer camp every year. And I did that growing up uh my whole life since i was eight years old i went to summer camp church camp um and then as i became a young adult i would take the youth to youth camp so i probably went to this youth camp i I 25 30 years every summer and when my kids got old enough i would take them and so i think about to me that's the most sacred space i could think of and and not because i don't know it's, it's, it's a camp that when you go up there, you're disconnected. There is no cell service. There is no Wi-Fi. The kids go nuts. They literally have their phones, and they look at it for the first few days until they realize, oh, yeah, and they kind of started putting their phones away. But there's this, there's this I don't know, I, I, I'll call it an anticipation to know that when I take a group of young people up there for a week, and they're disconnected from everything else, And they're just connected with nature, with each other, and there's worship services, so with God. There is this expectation that we will meet God. We will be changed by that experience. We'll build relationships. And that um, it it, it literally felt like a mountain-high experience. And so every year, every year I anticipated that week to know that I get to take kids up there To meet God, to be changed by God, to be transformed by God. That place is sacred for me. Even though I had to deconstruct my theological background and do not believe a lot of things I was taught, God was still present. God was still sacred there in that space and taught me a lot. Um, And so I started thinking about this space. It's a school um it's not a church it's not a cathedral uh but I think what makes this space sacred and I hope I can invite you to venture into this thought is not the physical space but the stories and the expectations and the ability to hopefully to meet God in this space to meet God in each other to meet God as a community And to be transformed by that. I think about um, as we have the opportunity to rebuild and reclaim what is sacred within Haven, I pray and hope that we can reclaim part of that sacredness, that mystical part of God, um, that we, as a faith community, that we choose to hopefully be transformed by that. And I think about... um, you know, it, I, I guess I think about it, if we choose to to just come and be a community, like friends, and get to know each other. That's one thing. But I hope and pray that we can be transformed by what's happened. I think about the Faith in Action group. Um, I love that 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 name of it, Faith in Action. That we aren't just here, but that we hope that our faith could be lived out through our actions in our daily life not just on Sundays but in our communication with each other in our interactions at schools or in our workplace um, or even places that we choose to take action and so I think about faith in action and, and that that's a place where we so choose to live into and be changed and transformed by God and not only us but the communities we reach out to. And so my hope and prayer is that Haven is a place where we can encounter God and be changed by the experience and that our history and our legacy will be a community of faith that transform lives and communities. Um, And as we continue to reclaim the sacred, reclaim the sacred, that we know that when we are here, that it's not just about us, but something bigger than us. This week, I sent out the email, and I gave a breathing exercise. Um, It was inhale. All things are spiritual. And it was exhale. I think it was something like give me the eyes to see the sacred. And so I wanted to close by doing that with us this morning. If you take a moment just to breathe in that breathing exercise, inhale, all things are spiritual, and exhale, give me eyes to see the sacred, breathe in, all things are spiritual, and exhale, give me eyes to see the sacred, God as we sit here stand here as a community thank you for reminding us that it's sacred because you are here with us it's sacred because you're living in our lives it's sacred because we get to live to tell the story of you working in our lives and may sunday's not just be a sundays our sundays where we get to gather and see one another But we gather with the anticipation that you are in our midst, that you are working in our lives, that you can transform us, that you are in the business of making all things new. And so, God, I pray for that this morning upon us, uh, for this community, that you are making all things new in our individual lives, in this community. And in the community, this school, may this school know our presence here. May Berkeley know our presence here. May the communities you reach know the presence you have here. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take time to go to breakouts, and I have three questions for y'all. Where have you experienced sacred space? As we've been talking about sacred space this morning, that's one question you could talk with your group. The other question is, how has Haven been a place of transformation in your life? How has it been sacred for you? And the last one, I want you to imagine with me as we create, as we reclaim the sacred, in what ways do you hope Haven becomes a sacred space for you, for this community, for this school, and for this city? So we'll take how long? 10 minutes to do a small group if you want to gather with your welcome to move chairs um, with a few people next to you and yeah let's have a short discussion. Thanks.